Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. Well, good afternoon. I was about to say good morning, but it's now actually afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Glad you're here today. Uh, my name is Danny Rivers, and I'm one of the pastors around here at LifePoint. I got to get a couple things to you before we get to the message. Um, you just heard it in the package there, but um, next Sunday is our Christmas service. This is the one where we have a l- we're real heavy on the music and caroling, and, and there's some fun stuff involved and some picture opportunities, some photo opportunities as well. This is the one where you want to bring your family and your friends, and you want to bring them to all of them, but this one especially is, is our sort of biggest service of the season. So we'd love it if you would invite folks and, and have them out here with us next week. It's going to be great. And then this other thing you didn't hear about, I, I want to tell you about, but you may have heard it on social media. This past Monday... Um, we broke ground on our new uh, home, y'all. We broke ground on it. Um, you can see right here, that started going down, and then all that, gra- there's no grass there anymore. They have built, they've started to build the pad, and what they're telling me is that over the next nine to 10 months, we will have a new home that we can move in. If the weather's not permitting, they said it'll take a year, but the guy said it's never taken him longer than nine months to build a church. Uh, with how long it's taken us to get here, I'll hold my breath. But I have faith. I, I can have faith. Everybody, amen on that? And so maybe this time next year, we're going to be in our own home. And so Monday, we threw a get-together because we had no time. It just happened like that. When it finally happened, we threw together a little um, groundbreaking ceremony with our staff and, and their families and our, and our trustees. We wanted to bring everybody in on it, but there's just simply no place to park because they've torn it all up and the mud's, yeah, it's not a good place. You ought to have been stuck. Everybody been angry at each other and it would have been a good thing. So when we, um, when we break ground, I, I promise you when we do, I mean, when we get to the next layers, we're going to invite you all out for various things along the way. But thank you so much for every person who's given along the way to help us get here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It will be, at some point, it will be worth it all because we're going to have our own space. So I just wanted to share that with you. On your way out today, on the left side, um, we have photo, we have pictures of, the, of, of the, the master plan and the building layout, but we also got interiors recently from our architects and their designers on what the insides are going to look like. There's carpet samples and flooring samples and like even the, the walls that divide the toilets, that stuff's all there. And, and maybe you're into that, maybe you're not, but um, go check that out on your way out today. It's really, really cool to see all that. Um, today, I, I'm, by the way, I'm so glad you're here. Today is a, a very special weekend for us. Today is Legacy Sunday. We do this every year. Uh, around this time. We've called it different things along the way. Um, And at the end, we're going to have a a giving moment for those of you who would like to participate. And there's never any uh, pressure to do so if you're a guest with us today, or even if you're a regular, this is a zero pressure deal. But what I wanted to do is kind of spend the message today um, telling you, uh, reminding you why we do this, why we take up this offering, why we receive it at the end of the year. And I want to do this today by kind of diving off into um, a lesser known part of the Christmas story. Um, and, and then we'll kind of unpack that along the way. But one of my favorite parts of Christmas is the music. Anybody with me on this? You like the Christmas music? Yes? Two people. Yes, two people. All right. Um, what I want you to do for just a second is look over to somebody next to you and tell them what the best Christmas song is. Go ahead and do that. Debate amongst yourselves. No punches, no elbows. What is that? I heard a no holy night. Anybody else? Jingle bells. 
Come on, San Antonio, we got to like Feliz Navidad. Come on. Jose Feliciano, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, let me, let, me, um, let me tell you which are some songs that are not the greatest of all times. Let me give you a little bit of one right here. Santa baby. Oh, yeah. Just slip a sable under the tree. It does have a nice Holly. sway to it, though. You know what I'm saying? Come on. Sway. This is the 12 o'clock service. So you guys do this with me a little bit better than the other people do. It's a song about com commercialism and overconsumption, but it's a powerful tune. Or this one. This one's not one of the great ones either. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Come on, sing it, sing it. Coming home from my house Christmas Eve. Some you can say there's no such thing as Santa. But as for me and Grandpa, we believe. Yeah! Not two of the greatest songs of all time. They're close, though, but not quite the greatest. I don't know what the greatest Christmas song is, but I want to tell you about the first one that was ever written today. It was composed about 2,000 years ago by a pregnant uh, teenage Jewish girl named Mary. You've heard of her, I'm sure. She was visiting her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth then pronounces this blessing upon her because of what is about to happen to her. She's about to give birth to the Savior of the world. And Mary sort of responds with this incredible outpouring that are the lyrics to this song that we call the Magnificat, right? In the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned these lyrics in, in public spaces. And the question is, why would they do this, right? Well, because nobody ever banned Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Grandpa got run, or Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Maybe they should have, but they didn't, right? Um, but they did this because they were considered subversive, these words. Um, they, 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 it was thought that if, if the people, especially downtrodden, hopeless, marginalized, oppressed people, ever, ever heard these words that were a prophecy about what God was about to do, according to this illiterate uh, teenage Jewish peasant girl, that it might incite hopeless uh, people to, to take hope, um, to, to take action. And so these are the words, the very dangerous words that Mary uttered that day. Now, these first, this first part is very personal. Listen to this with me. This is Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She's talking about herself. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Now here comes the band part, the subversive part, if you will. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. And he has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped us serve in Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. That's the first Christmas song that was ever composed. It was both prophetic, meaning it was foretelling what God was about to do, but it was also Mary's sort of grown-up Christmas 
list, if you remember that song. And she is describing in the second half of the song um, God's kingdom uh, come to earth. When Jesus would later on teach the disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In, in, in heaven. This is what she's describing. And, and she's describing up there, come down here on earth to change the way that things are. Not only then, but to continue unveiling God's kingdom in your life and in my life and through what we do around here as a church. Now, over the past six or so weeks, we've been emphasizing this day um, because at its core, Christmas is about a God who gives. Go read the story and you will understand this more and more because it's easy to lose sight of all of this with all of the, the stress and the, and the chaos that just seems to be ingrained into the season. But what made Christmas so great was what God got to do. God got to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. And Christmas shows us the true heart of God is about giving but there's another detail in John 3.16, which I just started and didn't finish, that is critical to understanding the meaning of Christmas, and that's the word son. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That, that God came into this world in Jesus as a little child, right? A baby boy, right? In, in, in the words of Ricky Bobby, eight, six, eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. Anybody know what I'm saying? Right? Don't watch that. It's bad. You know what I'm saying? I'm kidding. Now, if you think about Christmas in our context, having a baby around then should be a fun, exciting, joyful thing because those of you who are kids, those of you who remember being a kid, there's nothing like being a kid at Christmas. Can I get it again? Amen, right? I remember vividly uh, my childhood, um, and particularly the seasons where we didn't have much growing up. We didn't have a ton. Um, and, 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 and matter of fact, those are some of my best memories when it was just a few things that we'd get, but they would be so significant to us. And it seems like the more and more we give our kids, the less and less they appreciate it. Can I get a good amen, somebody? Right. But, but I remember at one Christmas, I was about, I don't know, 12 or 13, and my dad, who was not a sportsman, in any way, shape, or form. And to this day, I cannot imagine why he did this, but he bought me a 22 Magnum rifle for Christmas. And I, I felt like Ralphie from A Christmas Story, right? I was so pumped up that I didn't wait for dinner. I just took off. We lived in a neighborhood called Adams Hill, and behind Adams Hill was a patch of woods that went all the way from Ellison Drive out to 1604. It was miles, at least it felt to me, and I think it was a few miles. Um, and so I ran out in the woods with a with a, with a paper plate that I had drawn like concentric circles on to have a, a have a target and I and I stuck it to a bush and I stepped back a ways you know about to add legend to my name when all of a sudden out pops a little rabbit right by the target and I'm 12 or 13 and I'm thinking about the legend that could become my name if my first shot is into this rabbit Now don't be judging me now I'm 12 give me a break all right there sits little thumper, cottontail, nibbling on some clover or whatever grows in December the 25th. I don't know what grows then, but I, I, I had to bust a cap in him with my first ever shot from my Marlin 22 mag. Like, I killed him dead. 
I feel the hate coming at me right now. We'll get emails. PETA calling me. Can't remember if we ate Thumper or not, but if we did, it was amazing because it's Christmas Day and young Danny has brought home Christmas dinner. Brought the bacon home, like rabbit bacon or whatever. I don't know. You know, there's nothing like being a kid at Christmas. It's a time of joy and hope and celebration and fun and, and wonder. But the first Christmas was not really an ideal situation for, for baby Jesus. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what that day was actually like because we tend to romanticize the Christmas story as if the birth of Jesus looked like a display at Pottery Barn. Can I get an amen on that? Like, that's beautiful. Put it on the mantle, you know, right? Instead, we need to imagine this very small, musty, enclosed space, probably a cave of some sort filled with dirty uh, farm animals. And then you add to that picture a teenage girl who is in labor with ladies. Now pay attention. No drugs, no epidural, no bed, no OBGYN docs or no nurses, just Joseph and some animals. Can I get a collective groan about that, ladies? Right. That's what I thought. Right. The first Christmas was messy and surrounded by this weird, like, in, in, in prearranged marriage between Joseph and, and, and Mary, and now there's a baby at, at, at this point. And then things didn't get any easier after Jesus was born. Jesus' life was immediately in danger, and I want to explain that for a few moments so that you'll understand why we do what we do around here at LifePoint. Now, when Mary sang this song, everybody knew who the king was of Israel, right? The king was a man by the name of Herod. He was called Herod the Great, sort of colloquially. We, don't, we, uh, we know a great deal about him, rather, uh, because of a Jewish historian named Josephus, whose writings remained intact through the, through the centuries, and, and, and he had been given the title King of the Jews over 30 years prior by the Roman Senate, and he had fought for that title, and he had shed blood to hold on to that title. I want to tell you a few things about him that we know from Josephus. He had hitched his star, to, or his wagon rather, to the star of Julius Caesar, and then when Caesar, you know, if you'll remember from history, was assassinated, he was able to convince Mark Anthony that he was always, oh, I've always been a Mark Anthony fan, you know what I'm saying? Not like the singer Mark Anthony, just FYI. And then when Mark Anthony was overthrown by Caesar Augustus, he, he's like, hey, man, Caesar Augustus, I've always been your boy. You'll remember me from back in the day, right? And he knew how the world works, and he knew how power was gained and maintained. And he was married to at least 10 wives, maybe even some say 12. He had 43-ish children. Now, the only wife that he ever loved, according to Josephus, was one of his wives named Miriam. And he was kind of obsessive about her, according to history. And she had bore him five children, listen to ladies, in seven years. Prodigious, like rabbits. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Since I was going down a rabbit trail. From, I've worked out so many things into rabbits there. I just I didn't even mean to do that. I went down a rabbit trail, you see? Anyways, um, but, but, he, but he did not, he loved her, but he did not trust her loyalty. And so he had his wife, Miriam, the only woman he ever loved, executed just because he was concerned that she might try to usurp his power at some point. He didn't trust her mom, and so he had his mother-in-law executed as well. No, fellas, don't get any ideas about that, right? He had, he had two of his brothers-in-law executed. And on, on, 
on, he, he thought that his two sons, two of his sons who were born to him by, by Miriam were getting a little ambitious in their young age and so he had them smothered to death. His barber stuck up for these two little boys and he was executed because Herod thought maybe he might be dangerous. Even all the way onto his deathbed, five days prior to his death, he had another son put in prison and the son had heard that, that his father was very sick and thought he had died and so he tried, worried that he might be left there forgotten by whoever came next, he tried to bribe the guard to let him out and the guard went and told Herod. So Herod, five days before his own death, had his third son executed. Really, really good father of the year candidate. Can I get a good amen, somebody, right? Bad guy. He was known for, and he'd always wanted to be known for, uh, magnificent and uh, huge building projects. As a matter of fact, some of his, his works are still, uh, s- still survive to this day. He had a nickname. He was called Herod the Great. Now, anybody want to take a guess where he got his nickname? He gave it to himself. Come on, somebody. If you can't call yourself great, nobody can, right? And and part of the reason why the temple in Jesus' day was so controversial because it was known as Herod's temple because he had built it, but he had built it on the backs of the poor, right? His taxations and his economic policies had absolutely crushed people in Jesus' day, particularly the middle and, and, and the poor classes, So then if you read the Gospels, you'll start to understand why Jesus would have all of these stories about rich men and and who had had made a lot of money and then they would go off on a journey and and then they would come back to check on their servants and make them to give account. And there's these stories like this about wealthy landowners over and over and over again. There's a reason why you see these stories so often because this is exactly what was going on economically in Jesus' day. The poor people, people exactly like Mary's family, had lost their, their generational holdings on lands and, and became hopeless in that economy. They became peasants. They became serfs and a sort of fiefdom that was ruled by King Herod. And Herod's wealth was bloated on the backs of their suffering. This was the fabulously wealthy Herod, the king of the Jews, which brings us to our text this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Matthew is quick to note, Magi from the east, which we call the wise men, came to Jerusalem and asked, now notice this, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews. We we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. One day some strangers appear asking around town, these magi, these these visitors from the east, maybe men of certainly men of wealth and great importance from an area that might have been Persia, now, now Iran. They began to ask this question about town. Where is the one who was born here? King of the Jews. King of the Jews is a political title. It was Herod's. It had cost him a lot of blood, even familial blood. And and now there are these strangers walking around asking, where is this child, king of the Jews? So then you'll understand this next verse. When King Herod heard this, he was what? He was disturbed. And then notice the next line, and all Jerusalem with him. Because people now know This is a bloodthirsty tyrant. 
And if Herod ain't happy, it's not safe for anybody. If Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Fellas, it's like that at home. Can I get a good amen? Just kidding, ladies. Just kidding. Right? Mama ain't happy. Right? Me- meanwhile, meanwhile, little Mary, little meek and mild Mary sings her song. He has scattered those, she says, who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Who do you think she has in mind right now? He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Who's on the throne? Right, Herod. He has sent the rich away empty-handed. Who's rich? See, nobody's writing any of this stuff on the Hallmark cards of the day if they had them because this is how you get your head lopped off. Nobody is tuning in to listen to Bing Crosby saying he has sent the rich away empty, right? But this is all kingdom language, kingdom of God language. And so when Herod hears the rumors that a, that a true king of the Jews has been born, he is on a mission now to seek and find and destroy Jesus. And when his people can't find Jesus, he issues an order that all of the children, the baby boys under the age of two throughout Bethlehem and throughout the areas around Bethlehem should be executed. And there was a mass slaughter of innocence. But Gabriel had appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, go to Egypt. And so he had done so. And Jesus was spared the massacre of children at Christmas. I want you to understand that the first Christmas was surrounded by violence against children. I just need you to understand that, that for Jesus, life didn't get much easier after that. We don't know a great deal about Jesus' upbringing, but we know that he faced the challenges of growing up poor at risk, which is never easy, because growing up isn't easy. If you have some kids, when they go to sixth grade, middle school's a nightmare. Can I get a good amen? If, you're, if you remember middle school, that first few weeks, nightmare. It's hard to grow up. And this would have been especially true for children in Jesus' day. Because in the first century, children were not re- regarded with delight and joy as we do so now, but often with scorn and derision and, and, and disrespect. And this was a world in, in, in which the, in the Roman Empire, fathers had every right to just disown their kids at, for any reason and turn them out into the streets, no matter their age, to, to, to die and to be abandoned on the streets. And this was a world where, as one scholar put it, children had no status at all. They did not count for anything. In Rome, unwanted children were often taken to the Roman Forum and abandoned. They became the property of anyone who picked them up, and so they were collected at night by people who took them, who took care of them, just long enough to sell them as slaves or to stock the brothels of Rome. I want you to think about that. So that it was against this situation that Jesus was born an infant into that kind of circumstance. Christmas is not then just a story of God coming to earth as a child. It's it's the story of God becoming a child at risk. A child born into poverty and oppression with threats of violence. A child in in, in a world that did not have a heart for children. So, So then that whatever we are to make about God's compassion at Christmas, it has something at very least to do with the needs of children at risk, that somehow God knows the hurts and the pains and the struggles and the challenges of being a child, particularly a child at risk, because that's what he was. 
And this is reflected in the ways that Jesus would go on and interact and speak with and about children, particularly children at risk. They were incredibly important to him. And it explains why he did much of what he did in the Gospels and why he said much of what he said about children in the Gospel. And now we live in a world that, well, a part of the world where it's much, certainly much more child-friendly, and yet children and young people are most definitely just as much at risk in our, in our world today. I want to give you a few statistics. You can make of them whatever you want some global, some local, just to help us remember sort of concretely what is going on in our world. This is according to UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund. Almost one out of every two children in the world lives in poverty. 387 million children live in what's called extreme poverty, just meaning that their families live on less than $1.90 per day, or the equivalent. Tens of thousands of children die each year due to the effects of poverty. In Africa alone, some 900,000 children die of waterborne illnesses due to the lack of fresh water and the effects of mosquitoes biting them. 900,000 per year. For the 1.9 billion children living in the developing world, there are 640 without adequate shelter, which is one in three. Those of you who've been to Haiti with us, you've seen this firsthand. 400 million with no access to safe water, which is one in five. 270 million with no access to health services. This is just children, mind you. One in seven have absolutely zero access to any form of medication or medical services. That's today's world. And that will be true this year at Christmas. And that is not to guilt you about what you have. That is just to bring awareness to what is going on. And now, this is not just a foreign-born issue. It's also true here in our own backyards. Texas used to be ranked a few years ago number two, but I know that it's still in the top five in terms of food insecurity for children by the Department of Health and Human Services. Texas. Right? Just meaning that more people are at risk of facing hunger here than almost any other state in the Union. There's a new study that came out in May of this year, MAP, the, the Mule Gap. It was a study about, done on the Lone Star State that has an especially high number of children, 1.7 million who regularly face hunger. Like it's a daily, weekly problem for them. That's one of those things that just sorts of, sort of blows past us. That kids in our city go to bed hungry every night. I was downtown preaching at a church that serves those, those folks. And a student pastor was telling me that they have youth service on Wednesday nights in particular. And then they serve food, hot food there because they know that many of their students, will, this is the only hot meal that they'll get on that day. This is what they get at their church. In, in our city. Th those of you who have been with us as we go and serve uh, the families during Light Your World and through Thanksgiving, as you've been into their homes, you, you've seen this with your own eyes, that people in our city live in abject poverty with kids who, who did not do anything to deserve living like this have to endure. H human sex trafficking is a major issue in this city. Statistics say that 25% of the victims of human trafficking will come right through our city. 
because of the I-10 corridor, which is prodigious for bringing sex slaves through and to spread all the way out through the country. The average starting age for a sex slave in this state, according to what I read, is 12 to 13 years old. And they're usually runaways or at-risk children. Kids in our city who are growing up in violence, not enough food, not enough education, not enough support, not a family unit intact, many of whom are being raised by their, by their great-grandparents often because multiple generations have failed them. Now, this is not about the politics of why or about what the right next move is. That's not where I'm going with this. It's simply to say that this is real even in the wealthiest countries in, on the planet. But kids are at risk today not just based on economic realities. More and more children are growing up relationally starved. There are new studies out that say that some kids are only getting 15 minutes or less per week of one-on-one time with a parent. And some surveys suggest that, that many young people have never had a single spiritual conversation with an adult in their lives, ever. No one has ever sat down one-on-one and told them how much Jesus loves them and believes them and, and calls them his sons and daughters, ever. That there is a poverty of interaction, a poverty of presence that is affecting young people and children across all cultural and economic backgrounds. Now, why am I telling you all this? You're like, what is this, social studies class, right? I'm telling you this because while Christmas reminds us that children live at risk, it also reminds us of God's heart for those same children because time and time again in the Gospels, we would read that Jesus would interact with and, and embrace and receive and bless, lay his hands on them and physically bless them when his, even sometimes when his disciples would rebuke him and the children for doing so. That Jesus had this incredible heart for young people and, and, and he has an even bigger heart for how people like you and me are able to help change things, to show compassion, his compassion for young people. Let, let, me, let me show you what I mean. When, when in the Gospels, when Jesus would, would uh, talk about his heart for children, the first thing that he told some adults in the room was, listen, you need to become more like them. We're telling our kids, you need to grow up and Jesus is telling, you need to grow down and be more like them. There's a point in one of the Gospels when the disciples are discussing, like, who is the greatest? Like, can you imagine sitting around and going, no, no, it's, it's clearly it's me. Like, this is what they're doing. And so Jesus, in response, is, he just, in, in Matthew 18, he calls over a child to him. Verse 2, and placed the child among them. And here's what he says, using this child as a metaphor. Truly, I tell you. Unless you change and you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in this powerful verse, and whoever welcomes one such child. Now, the word welcomes is, is in, in, implying hospi- hospitality. Whoever feeds, whoever clothes, whoever gives water to, whoever helps one such child in my name You're welcoming me. Now, why does Jesus do this? What I don't think he's doing is saying that God loves children because they are all so cute and innocent because if you have some, you know they are not always so cute and innocent. Can I get a good amen, somebody? They are demanding, they are needy, they are messy, they are stubborn, they think the world revolves around them, and that's just the good ones, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) 
But really, are, are we that different? Are we not demanding and needy and messy and stubborn, right? And Jesus says, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. When we consider the Christmas story, we see how we help at-risk children in, at Christmas time. We do so in person just the way that God did. Chris reminds, Christmas reminds us that God did not send a new program or a new or, or, or a messenger or a set of resources. God sent his son who came in person seeking out lost sons and daughters. That he didn't just speak a word. He came himself on a mission trip to find and help and serve and save and set free people, his sons and daughters who were lost. And Jesus at one point says, and whatever you did for the least of these, you've done it for me. And we live in a world where kids are at risk and, and more than programs or strategies or even resources, they need caring adults to come running into their world to find them, to love them, to believe in them, to support them, even if they don't know that they are in the margins or oppressed or forgotten. What Jesus invites us to do as a community of believers this Christmas is to come into their worlds. And there's so many ways that you can do that. And to fail to show up as a community of believers is to miss a major portion of the reason why Jesus came and did what he did. So back to Mary's song. Her first Christmas carol is an indicator of why he was coming. He was coming to make the wrongs right. He was coming to help the poor and the forgotten. He was coming to give food to the hungry, she says. He was coming to fight against injustice by the oppressors. This is all, by the way, kingdom language. And her song is vivid and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's insurgent. And you, and you want to say, be careful, Mary. Be careful. You go around talking about kings being dethroned because of your baby boy. Somebody's going to get mad. That kind of talk is going to get somebody crucified see there was only two people who initially understood what was really going on one of them was the most powerful man in the country Herod the Great and the other of them was a penniless and powerless illiterate maybe 14 year old Jewish peasant girl one sees Jesus as the hope of the world the other as a threat to his heart one base of power and then most everybody else just missed it all together and the truth is the truth is is many of us most of us myself included often miss it every year at Christmas our story is in America one of overconsumption and out of control consumerism particularly at this time of year we worship less I watch it every year, and this is, you're here, so don't feel bad. I watch it every year as our, the numbers just decline through December, and I'm like, ah, it's Jesus' birthday. Hello, hello. But I see it every year, not just our church, all around. Why? Got stuff to do, got things to buy, got errands to run, got a Santa to visit. Like, I get it. 
this is not a guilt trip, all right? Don't, don't go down that road with me. And we often buy into the lie that the amount of money or the amount of presents that we buy is an indicator about how much we love our children or our friends or our family. We know better, don't we? And could it be that on Christmas Day, the very first Christmas Day when the Isaiah, prophet Isaiah just said we would be called Emmanuel, God with us, and God came near as he always does and as he always has and always will be, that we would miss the point yet again? Or, or what if, here's the other alternative, what if instead of just being bystanders to the Christmas story, what if we got into the story and played our role in the story? What if we, like the three magi who came to worship and offer gifts to God in flesh, what if we came and offered ourselves, our resources, our talents, our, our problem-solving skills? to do the work of the gospel at Christmas, to partner with those who are helping, serving at-risk children? What if this were a compassionate Christmas? What if instead of more and more and more stuff, we decided, you know what, that's enough, and we brought our best to him, to his work, that his heart became our heart, that his passions became our passions? And this is where it gets real. This is where... The gospel gets fleshed out where we incarnate, we give flesh to Jesus' mission, his gospel. Jesus was the incarnate God, right? God in flesh. The root word of incarnate is carne. Anybody want to know what carne is? It's, it's meat, right? Which, by the way, proves that God is not a vegetarian. Can I get a good amen? He came in meat. Right? Can I get a witness on that? Amen. From some men. Redneck theology. Man, I'm praying. I'm going with it. Right? But, but, but this season, we have the opportunity to become his hands and his feet, to incarnate the mission that God came, particularly in our case for children. That's what's at the heart of this once a year legacy offering. We want to do our, our, our part to help children, not just ours here. That would be easy enough for us to do just to go, now nah, let's make it all about our kids. And not even just those in our city, but through an organization called Iowa's Home for Children, which is in the Philippines. I, I was talking to Jim Kilgore, who used to be my pastor and my boss. He still is, I would consider him a pastor in my life, who started this, this orphanage outside of Manila. And I thought they had about 60 or 70 kids, but we were talking the other day and there's more like a hundred. And, and, and they're, they're expanding that thing right now to double its capacity. And listen, listen, you're a part of that because of what you've given over the years. You're part of helping that thing go. I, I think about our, our, the school and the orphanage that we're, we serve down in Haiti. We, we both go there, but we send a, a large chunk of money every month down there. I, I think about Agora right here in our city um, and, and Urban Faith Mission, which you guys have been helping us support through Light Your World this year. All of those bikes and all of those coats that you have guys have brought, um, we're going to take there this week on your behalf and we're going to bring hope and light and, and help to at-risk children. Every, if you would look at our missions portfolio, the things that we give money to every year, tens of thousands of dollars to on your behalf, almost every single one of them have to do with helping children at risk. Because that's who, that's what God cares about. That's who he's thinking about, his kids. He's thinking about, he loves them all. We sing a song that he loves all the children of the world. But he, his heart, his eyes are on those who are in trouble. 
So this Legacy Sunday, we've carved out one day for us to intentionally, uh, to, 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 to sacrifice and to take something that's important, our finances, and to leverage those financial resources to move the kingdom of God forward at Ima's home, at Urban Faith Mission. This is really important because this is about, listen to me now, this is about eternity. So often, maybe our charitable giving goes to things that have no real eternal impact associated with it. Man, listen, I'm all about charity and feeding people and, and education. We, we will always be part of that there. But none of that is more important than partnering with places and people and organizations that are actually sharing the love and the light of Jesus and his gospel. Listen, uh, Pastor Jim told me a couple of weeks ago that, they, they, that, that, that 10 children at that little orphanage who have been plucked off of the streets of Manila. I've been to Manila. I've seen these little kids, often one or two years old, no parents, no adults, nobody there. They're just eking out on the side of the road, many times just naked walking. I've seen it with my own eyes. Trying to eke out, survive to adulthood. He's, they're pulling them off one by one. And 10 of those little babies, who many of whom are growing up now, gave their lives to Jesus a couple of weeks ago and got baptized because you gave, man. That's part of your legacy. That's part of your legacy. And here's the truth. If I want to leave a legacy that is eternal, if I want to make an eternal difference, I've got to partner with people who are making an eternal difference. And this offering is about that. You want to do something in your life that matters? I think every one of us do. This matters. And maybe God is leading you right now in some concrete way, convicting your heart about some kid that you know or some friend's child that just desperately needs mentoring or, or a young person or maybe getting involved right here with our students and our kids' ministry. And I'm gonna call out the men for just a minute. Listen, our, our children's ministry for the most part is run by women. And, and, and listen, what some of these kids need is, is, a, is a man in their life a role model, a Christ-following, God-honoring man. And maybe God is, is putting it on your heart to step up there and go, how can I serve? I'm just dropping that on some men right here, and I'm going to leave it there, and you deal with it however God wants you to deal with it. Some of you, maybe God's been talking to you about foster care or adoption, and you're like, how can we? Could this be the nudge today right now where you say, you know what, let's not make it, let's not make it some pie-in-the-sky dream, babe. Let's go after it. Let's go do that. Let's change somebody's life who desperately needs our help. Whatever it is that God's going to do today through you, whatever it is, whether that's offering your time or your talent or like this offering, your resources, I promise you, God sees that. God rewards that. And God will bless you. It's going to bless you more than you know. Amen, somebody. I'm going to pray over you and then we're going to invite the band to come back up and lead us in this last song. But Father, we just come to you. We're just so grateful that you sent Jesus. Not only that you sent him, but the way that you sent him. A baby. He was one of us. But he was a child at risk. He was a child that knew persecution. And I think that's as, as much as any reason why he has such a heart in the Gospels, why we read that he had such a heart for children. And may his heart become our heart. And may we be the kinds of people for whom consumption is not our testimony. 
but that we are willing sacrificially to give of our resources in this offering today or of our time. God, that we would step up and serve in student ministry or kids ministry. That we wouldn't just let that be for some people, but that we would say, what's my part, God? Because it's true that even some of our own kids here at LifePoint are at risk in one way or another. And Lord, whatever it is that you're calling us to do, whether it's foster children or whether that's adopt, as many of us have in this room today, God, I just pray that you give us the courage, the willingness to step up and make your mission to incarnate, to become the feet and the hands of Jesus, to walk it out for real, to flesh it out. I pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Help us, I pray. Amen. Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If this ministry has impacted you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, please visit lifepointsa.com give to make a donation. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we hope to see you soon at one of our Sunday worship experiences. God bless.